0: Welcome, Watchmen. I am the Paladin Preacher with Peleus Men's Ministry. Let's jump into tonight's topic. Are you ready? Let's begin. Tonight we're going to be covering a few topics which may come across as controversial. You'll probably disagree with some of the standpoints that I've taken, but I would ask that you keep an open mind, that you would pray about what it is that I'm speaking about this evening, and I think either two things are going to happen. Either you will solidify your current standpoint, in which case everyone's entitled to what they believe and what they believe is true. This is simply me trying to convey the truth that I believe exists that um, typically isn't taught within church, church culture, and on Sunday school. So I hope that you would keep an open mind that you would hear me out and listen through the podcast. And I would really appreciate your feedback and really appreciate your standpoints. Uh, You can leave that in the comments or you can message me. Uh, This is more to open the lines of communication between you and me so that we can have a, a real dialogue about what I believe is happening, what your viewpoints are. And hopefully we can both come to a better place where we're seeking the Holy Spirit first and we're seeking Jesus uh, in a manner that, that pleases the kingdom. So I'm going to go ahead and open with prayer and then I'll review what we're going to talk about this evening and then we'll get into tonight's topic. Holy Spirit, we come before you this evening. We present this material to you and we ask that you would speak to us, Lord. Give us the words and help us hear the things that you want us to hear. Help us to have our hearts be opened and our ears be opened to what you have to say. Because ultimately, it's not what we're saying, Lord, it's what you have to say. And we have to be listening, and we have to listen and take action. We ask that you would continue to watch over our families, that you would keep us safe, that you would watch over our children and our friends. Continue to bless us in the way that you see fit, Lord. Let your will be done, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I feel like people are searching for something in every possible idea or belief or self-help book, television show, or through a celebrity spokesperson, but these are all things that the world has presented to us as a possible or potential path to heaven. Now, we know that only God can take us to the next stage in our life. And we have to do that in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. Just like we've talked about before with Gideon, with Abraham, with Daniel, all of them were presented with situations of turmoil. And instead of turning inward and worrying and stressing and and getting anxiety for the external events that were happening to them, their sole focus was focused on the Holy Spirit. They were completely focused and their eyes were completely fixed on what Jesus was trying to tell them. And I think we can take that as an example of what it means to truly seek the Holy Spirit and seek the kingdom. Because there's so many different ways that we can get distracted or get pulled away or listen to someone's motivational speaking, and get encouraged in the moment. But then the moment we enter back into our normal day-to-day life, we, we fall back into a, our rut that we were trying to get out of. It's a temporary fix and a temporary band-aid when we focus on the, what the world has presented to us as a solution to the problem. When in reality, we shouldn't be turning to anything that the world has to offer. We should be solely focused on what the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us, Because ultimately, the Holy Spirit will guide us through whatever it is that we're dealing with. If you have your Bibles, I want to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 21. And we're going to briefly go over Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So it picks up when Jesus entered the city on Sunday, Palm Sunday, He was greeted by cheering crowds proclaiming him king, much to the dismay of the religious leaders, Pontius Pilate and the 10th Roman Legion, who had also taken up residence at the Antonia Fortress to control the enormous crowds that swelled the city during Passover. So a time during Passover meant the normal population of Jerusalem, which was typically around 100,000 or so people, swelled to over a million people in a matter of a few days. The Jewish unrest was rampant during the time of Jesus, with numerous radical rebellions and uprisings occurring all throughout Palestine. The Northern Territory of Galilee, which was Jesus' home, was actually a fountain of radical thought and revolutionary movements during this time, around 32 AD. When Jesus entered the city on Passover with a million frustrated Jews and the crowds loudly proclaiming him king was more than volatile. It was actually adding kindling to an already hostile situation that everyone was gearing up. They were just waiting for something to go bad, the last thing, the final straw, to ensue that this entire population would turn against either the Romans, against the government, or against their religious leaders. The Jewish leaders would have been shocked and outraged at Jesus' behavior a few days, a few days prior, or excuse me, a few days after he had entered the city, when he was chasing out the money changers at the temple, and the Romans were already on high alert because of the events surrounding Jesus in the city. So these these uh, Romans who had occupied Jerusalem during this time, you have to imagine it's it's almost like they're gearing up for a potential riot. They're they're there to keep the peace. They've got an overwhelming abundance of population that's not typically there. So you've got people from all different walks of life, all different types of criminals, all different types of rebels, people that were on wanted lists. All of these people were were flooding into Jerusalem to take advantage of the situation of the the massive amounts of people that were going to be there because they the the people knew that if they did enter the city, chances of them being able to get away with something at the time was rather high, due to the fact that there were so many people and not enough guards to handle everyone at the same time. So, let's pick up here in Matthew 21 and and 22, where Jesus is starting to get confronted by the delegation in Jerusalem. And in, in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14, Jesus gives them the parable of the wedding feast when he's being confronted. And we'll pick up here in verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And that his servants were sent to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent the servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was furious, and he sent his troops and destroyed the murderers, and he burned their city. And then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. The warning in this parable, I believe, is if we do not continue to cultivate Christians in the correct way based on biblical truths, the kingdom of God will be taken away from us and given to someone else. Now, I'm not trying to say that. Your salvation will be taken. But what I want to tell you is that I truly believe that there is rewards in heaven. Gold, silver, and precious stones. And those rewards are given to us based on the works that we do do for the kingdom. Now some might argue that, that that's not true, that the only reward that we receive is the reward to go into heaven. Now I'd, it's been argued, and I've had debates about this before, but I'm not convinced that that's true. So in a sense, if we are not cultivating Christians in the way that we are supposed to, if we're not focused on the kingdom of God and doing things for the kingdom to build up rewards in heaven, the kingdom of God, a.k.a. the rewards in heaven, can be taken away from us and given to someone else. If God has given us gifts and he has granted us the anointing to do certain things for the kingdom, and yet we choose not to do it, And we choose to focus on ourselves, how could God be fair if he treated those same people the same way as those who did things for the kingdom and were completely focused on the kingdom of God? God is 100% completely fair all of the time. And when we get those rewards in heaven, everything we did for the kingdom will be parceled out based on the rewards that we have. And those who did not focus on the kingdom will not have the reward. It's, in, it's my firm belief that you will get the bare minimum of a reward. And it, I believe it says that they will be entering through, entering through the gates of heaven like it was jumping through or passing through fire. I don't remember exactly the, the verse, scripture that that comes from, but if the bare minimum is as if you are jumping through fire to get in through heaven— Why the hell would you want to do that? If God is giving you the opportunity to build rewards in heaven, and he's giving you a free gift, who are we to say no? In a sense, that'd be like if you invited your your best friends to a birthday party, and they all brought you really expensive gifts. And they were honored to give you those gifts because they love you and they cherish you and they want to they bless you and give you this opportunity and express their generosity to you because of how much they love you. And when they show up and they, they've got their ri- g- gifts all wrapped up and they hand them to you and you say to them, no thanks, I don't need a gift. I don't want it. Whatever you brought me, you can take it back. All I wanted was to have you guys here. I don't know if that were me, I would feel devastated that I wanted to love on my friend and give them this this gift of generosity and they completely disregarded that and told me to get rid of it like they didn't want it. They didn't care. Like I would be heartbroken in a sense. Like yes, I would I would be grateful that they were there. But to me it would hurt to have them so blatantly and flippantly just disregard this generous gift that I wanted to bestow upon them because they just couldn't care less. I put myself in that same situation when I think about the gifts and rewards that God is trying to give us. If God is giving us the opportunity to receive these gifts of blessing and rewards and gold, silver, and precious stones that he wants to give us, and yet we're choosing to say no thanks god i don't care i don't want the gift all i want to do is be here i'm just here to show up i don't want to receive anything thanks so much see you later i mean that to me just seems offensive so i would i would urge you to consider your standpoint on what you believe as far as the rewards that we have in heaven and how we should be seeking the kingdom to receive those rewards So, it leads me to my next point, which is regarding size of church and size of congregation, regardless of how big our church may be, or how many members that we have, even how famous we are on TV, or how many books we sell, or how many speaking engagements that we book, we are all equal in the eyes of God, and the Holy Spirit— sees us just the same. And we can just as easily grieve the Holy Spirit in ways potentially detrimental to our relationship with Christ, which we'll go into more detail later in the discussion. But just because we stand and say, I believe during a church service, doesn't ensure that we'll inherit the entire reward that God has set aside for us. Just because you say you believe doesn't mean you truly believe. I've been listening to another book by R.T. Kendall, and it's, Holy Spirit, Is That You? And it's this idea of, how can we discern whether or not the Holy Spirit is is genuine, and we can recognize when it it is an actual, he uses the metaphor of a dove versus a pigeon. He calls it pigeon religion, or true Holy Spirit dove, and in a sense he talks about how the pigeon and the dove anatomically are almost identical. You can't tell them apart, yet the personality that they both share are distinctly different. The dove is agitated, it's, it's angry, it, it fights, it wants to stay in groups, it's completely solely re- dependent upon human beings, typically for food, and then you have the the dove, who which is easily startled. It it can't be approached. It, it's very timid. If you if you're too loud, it'll it'll fly away. You have to be very cautious about how you're acting and how you're behaving around the dove. And that's how you can tell the difference because of the temperament and their behavior. So just because someone stands up and says, "I believe in a church service," that's only the first step. But you have to truly believe what you're saying and understand that what you're saying means that you are willing to take the next step, and that is to seek out the personal relationship with Jesus. If you stand up and simply say, I believe, but then you don't follow through, you don't truly believe. Because if you did, you would follow through and you would take action. There's faith, and then there's action. It is so much more in the relationship, the way we live out our lives for Christ, and being present in the Holy Spirit than it is to say a couple words and join a Bible study. If we can realize that the importance is upon the action than it is upon just saying the words, I think that would be the first milestone that the church could see that there are people truly seeking after Jesus Christ and not just saying it to say it. So why is it important, as we come to the next stage in life, that we do it in partnership with the Holy Spirit? So we've discussed in in previous episodes where we are in the current cultural climate, and before we discuss how to get there, I believe it's also important that we talk about the why. So why now? Revelation 7-9 says, A great multitude from every nation. After this I looked, and behold, A great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from every tribe and people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, the palm branch in their hands. There are 85 verses in the Bible stating Jesus will not return again until the Word of God has reached all the peoples, the whole world, every tribe and language and people and nation. Every knee shall bow, and every tongue will say that Jesus Christ is Lord. So what does this mean in real-world terms? First, I think we have to identify what is an actual people group. So a people group is defined as an ethno-linguistic group with a common self-identity that is shared by various members. For strategic purposes, it is the largest group within the gospel that can spread without encountering barriers of understanding or acceptance currently in the in the world today there's 7.6 billion people that classify as an unreached people group that would be 11,757 people groups total now excuse me 11,757 people groups within the world now Let's talk about how many of them, of that 11,000, are unreached. So, unreached people groups, 4.5 billion people. That's 7,088 people groups that have currently not been reached yet. A people group is considered to be unreached, uh, acronym is UPG, where there is no indigenous community of believing Christians able to engage this people group with church planting. So technically speaking, the percentage of evangelical Christians in this people group is less than 2%. So how many of the unreached people groups are unreached and unengaged? Of that number, we have 3,159 unengaged, unreached people groups. That's 238 million people. So Just to clarify, so we have a people group, and we have over 11,000 people groups in the world. We have unreached people groups, and of that, we have that 7,088 people groups that are not only people groups, but they're unreached. And now we have unreached and unengaged, and that's that 3,100. So an unreached people group are groups of unengaged people where there is no church planning strategy consistent with evangelical faith and practice currently underway they are gathering believers and planting churches are the keys to establishing an effective and multiplying presence among these people groups so we've got over 3000 unengaged unreached people groups that now we are trying to reach now some of you have probably heard of the famous table 71 and the Table 71 was a YWAM group, which, is, which was 25 ministries that were bringing the gospel to the remaining tongues and people groups around the world. And their discussion at Table 71 ultimately came to the conclusion that they felt the Holy Spirit calling them, that they needed to be the ones reaching every unengaged, unreached people group around the world and their goal is to establish a strong, viable church within the unreached people groups so that the number of the unreached people groups is ultimately reduced to zero. 2020, all the plans will need to be submitted. By 2025, all of the plans will be approved and they will be starting action. In 2026, all the plans will be in implementation phase. So we're looking at a six to seven year outlay ultimately, between now 2019 and 2026, for all these unreached people groups around the world to have a plan in place, to get a church planted, and to reach these people and bring the the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Again, so we ask, why now is this important, and why is this ministry something that was put on my heart to activate at this current moment? It's my belief That this was put on my heart because the minimum requirements for the second coming will have been met. Completing the prophecy that before Christ will come again, every tongue and every people will have heard the word of God. Now, to be clear, I am not prophesying that I know when or where the second coming will take place. Matthew twenty four thirty six says, "But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only." What I am saying is that the boxes will be checked, and the stage will be set for the second coming. Think about that. Seven years from to now, from now, every unreached people group in the entire world. We'll have a plan in place and set in motion and being initiated to bring the gospel to them. That means the boxes will be completely checked. Now, I don't know when it's going to happen. Could be literally the day after every church around the world gets planted for those unreached people groups. Then boom, we could be called up to heaven. It could happen... 10 days after that, that plan has been implemented and the church has been planted, it could happen 10 years from then. No one really knows for certain, but all we can know for certain is that the stage will be set and all the minimum requirements will have been met according to the prophecy in Scripture. God could ultimately choose not to come for another 500 years. But the urgency for us, especially as believers in Jesus Christ, remains the same. Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30 say, After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account for how they had used his money. We cannot know when, but we know we have to be prepared to give an account. We can't waste any time in performing our duties now for when God comes again in the future. The time is now, the urgency is now. The urgency and immediacy is just like when John wrote the book of Revelations. Quote, However, if we were to canvas the prophetic utterances of the Hebrew Bible and the phenomenon of prophecy within the New Testament and early Christian worship, we might instead arrive at the conclusion that, while prophecy could include a predictive element, It was primarily a declaration of God's action in the present. In these cases, prophecy served as an announcement of God's evaluation of the present actions of God's people, diagnosing problems and calling realignment with God's values. We will never know for certain if the book of Revelations actually comes true unless we are around for the events to occur or we are in heaven. What we can know for certain was the expressed urgency of the writing of Revelation, which mirrored the cultural context of where John was and the events that happened, precluding him to write the text with the assistance of the Holy Spirit. The sense of immediacy with, with, with which John writes made it sound like the events would occur within the current generation of peoples. However, when it did not occur because the prophecy of Revelation 7-9, which was previously discussed, had not come to pass, although unreached people groups had been reached, the Christians of the day made written copies of the manuscripts in order to disseminate them throughout the nations." This brings up a concept which we will talk more about in later sessions having to do with the two forms of God's will as we see in the Bible relating to either the hidden will of God or the revealed will of God. But when John was writing Revelation, there were so many things happening within the culture that it seemed like God was going to be coming now. If all hell is breaking loose around you, which I'm sure it felt like during World War One, World War II, Vietnam, Korea. It feels like it's hell on earth, and it can't get any worse. But the problem is, God can't come again until every tongue says his name, and every knee will bow, and every unreached people group in every tongue and every nation is reached with the, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But now we're saying that in seven years, those plans will be in place. How is it that everyone's sitting around wondering what they're going to eat for breakfast tomorrow or what what career change they're going to make or how much money they're going to make on their next year's salary or what their bonus is going to be or what new car they're going to buy? In my mind, we have seven years left until Jesus comes again, and that's not much time. If you only had seven years left to live, how many people would you go around and try and convince that Jesus Christ is Lord and that the Holy Spirit wants to dwell within them? Seven years. Think about that for a moment. The clock is ticking. And in seven years, the stage will be set. Every box checked, everything signed, everything being finalized. The only thing that comes next is us waiting on when the Lord comes. In my mind, I like to think of it as during the, the Normandy invasion, when the men arrived on the beaches of Normandy, everything was D plus one, D-day plus two. D plus three, D plus four. In my mind, in seven years' time, when every plan has been submitted for every unreached people group, that is D-Day. Anything beyond that is bonus days, in my opinion, that God is giving us to make sure that we reach enough unreached people. But what does that mean for us? That means that we have to get our heads on straight and get our foundation in what really matters. We can't be concerned about how much money we're going to make. We can't be concerned about what house we're going to buy and where we're going to live, where our kids are going to go to high school. All of those things are real day-to-day issues that we deal with. But we can't allow those things to distract us from what the ultimate goal is. And that is D-Day. Every day that God gives us beyond that day, those are bonus days to make sure that we can do our job for the kingdom because every person that you don't talk to every mission strip that you don't take every missed opportunity to share the gospel with somebody is somebody that potentially could never hear the gospel again and you might not see them forever i don't want that kind of weight bearing down on my conscience and I don't want to have that kind of weight bearing down on me when I'm standing before the throne and Jesus asked me, what did you do with the past seven years? How many people are you standing next to that you could talk to? How many missions trip do you think you could get in this year? How many prisons could you go visit and men that you could sit with and pray with? Men that could be on death row. Men that could be serial murderers that are in for life sentences that they'll never see the light of day. Men that are in solitary confinement for doing horrific, atrocious acts but have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those kind of people deserve to hear the gospel of Jesus. And Jesus is giving us that time so that we can take action, so that we can feel the tug and feel the way the Holy Spirit is guiding us, so that we can sit down with those men and women and we can share with them, probably for the first time in their entire life, that there is a Father that loves them, that cherishes them, that wants to have a relationship with them, and give them an opportunity to have eternal life with him. You could be that person that changes someone's life forever. And you know what? God will reward you for it. When you get to heaven, he's going to remember every single name of, the, of people that you spoke to and who learned about his name. He'll know every single one and he will have rewards and riches of gold and silver and precious stones awaiting you for the things that you did for his kingdom. So how do we get to the next stage in life in, part, in partnership with the Holy Spirit? So now that we've discussed the current cultural climate in, in the previous episodes, and what we're discussing in this episode is that why it's important that we begin now. I think we can now discuss the how and introduce the ministry in the discussion and how that encompasses what we need to do and the actions we need to take. This man was a retired United States Marine Corps officer, fighter pilot, ground combat leader, He was an F.A. 18 pilot who deployed twice from the USS John C. Stennis in support of combat operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. He spent three years as an instructor pilot at Top Gun, where he served as the training officer, the senior staff pilot responsible for conduct and conducting the Top Gun course. This man's name was Dave Burke. And Dave Burke said this there is a right way, and then there is everything else that is inferior. Everything can be backed up and documented. You cannot do something that is new. I believe this translates equally to studying Scripture and to sharing the gospel. Every conceivable manner of the gospel being shared has already been done. I would challenge you to come up with a new way of distributing the gospel that hasn't been done for the past thousands of years. I don't think it's possible to come up with something new. But what we do know is that there is a right way of doing it, and then there's a wrong way of doing it. The wrong way trying to convince somebody on television or at a megachurch that in order to come into the kingdom of God that you have to give money to fund the the church or to fund the program that they're selling or to to buy their new book because if you buy the new book then you're contributing to the kingdom and therefore you're gonna earn reward I don't think that's true what it comes down to is the pure basics The fundamentals of sharing the gospel is sitting down with somebody, putting your hand on their shoulder, asking if you can pray with them. You don't even have to know what to say. The Holy Spirit will give you the right words to say. Sometimes you don't even need to say anything. Sometimes you just need to sit down and listen to what they have to say and hear their story and pray with them and just tell them that Jesus loves them. Ultimately, when we're sharing the gospel, it's not up to us to convert somebody to believe in Jesus. I think that's a, a misconception that is out in the world right now, that it, you have to convert that person. As a church, you are the one converting people to, to know Jesus Christ. But that is a complete lie straight from hell. Only the Holy Spirit converts people to know Jesus Christ. We are simply creating an opportunity so the Holy Spirit can work within their life. The moment we start reflecting on what we can do, or how many people we can can convince to join our side, quote-unquote, that's a slippery slope that leads straight to hell. Because all that is is saying that you have spiritual pride, that you're arrogant, And that what you are doing is within your power and not within the Holy Spirit's power. The Holy Spirit is the sole reason people come to know Jesus. I find it interesting when churches have I Believe services, or they have services where people are accepting Jesus for the first time, and then they begin to take pride in the fact that they, the church, converted those people. They did no such thing. The Holy Spirit was acting in their life. The Holy Spirit was putting the tug on their heart. They simply just had the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work. The moment we start getting spiritual pride is the moment that Satan loves that, because then he can use that to his advantage, and we have to guard our hearts from that type of thinking and that type of mentality. And I think it's a mentality that we've taken in this current Christian culture that is degrading the concept of really bringing people to know Jesus and in a matter that's fitting fitting for and honorable to the Holy Spirit. We're at a pivotal moment in our world history where nearly every possible idea or iteration of an idea has already been developed or created. And the same can be said about God's Word. The Bible in its latest canon is the living Word of God, and it is infallible. Therefore, every possible way of sharing God's word has already been conceived and performed. All of the moments in its rich history tie beautifully into the dynamics of our human history. History is commonly referred to as God's story because, after all, we are all created by God, and I believe that all wisdom and understanding comes from him. Therefore, it is his story, history, to us, that we may learn everything we need to know to better ourselves and to better the followers of the kingdom of God. So what is it that we believe as watchmen? And at Peleus Ministry, what is it that we would call our belief statement? I believe it's seven components full. Number one, we believe that God is the king above all kings. Number two, we believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Number three, we believe in the Holy Spirit, its power, and its presence in us. Number four, we believe in Jesus' crucifixion on the cross. Number five, we believe in the resurrection and that Jesus conquered death. Number six, we believe in the Holy Spirit's calling for us. And number seven, we believe he. Jesus, the Lord, the King of Kings, is coming back again. What is it that we have to avoid? We're always competing for money and market share. Whether that's your donor base, whether that's how many people you can bring into your Bible studies or how many people you can come into your ministries, How many people that are coming into your church services? How many people can we get? It's butts and seats. And then, how do we move those butts and seats to the next stage where they can spend more money, get a little bit of Bible study and community, and then get them into the next stage where they can spend a little bit more money on training, get a little bit more influence around the people that they're there with, build a little bit of connectivity. It's a money making operation. The first churches were not money making operations. They were funded off of people who were giving with their generosity, who were giving because they knew it was right, and they were giving because they knew they were bringing people into the kingdom of God, not because they were trying to put butts in seats. I say enough, we are competing and we're not separate. We are all part of one body in Christ. So often, I see the enemy siloing us off. That's the best way to defeat a large enemy. You never take a huge enemy on head on. You have to spread the enemy out, thin their ranks, find a way to get them fighting with one another, find a way to separate them from each other, find a way to get in their heads so that they're no longer a unified front, and then once that happens, you can take any massive army down, and that's exactly what the enemy is doing. I'd prefer not to use secular media as a quote for a scripture-based podcast, but I do think because of the context in which we're talking about, I think it is fitting. So I'm sure you're all familiar with the character of Game from Game of Thrones called Tyrion Lannister. And he had a quote that said, Winter is coming. We stand together or we all die. Now, it's an extreme t- standpoint, but in a sense, I believe... It's exactly what we need to hear. We are so busy siloing each other off, fighting for donor base and fighting for market share. We're church planting in the same county over and over and over again when we could be allocating funds to reach these unreached people groups, to reach people who have never heard the gospel before. Not so that we can funnel them into our program and put them into our funnel to put more butts in seats and to generate more revenue. The objective is to take back territory from the darkness, not to squabble and fight amongst ourselves for donor base. The sooner we will wake up to that, the more equipped to tackle the real enemy will be. We cannot be naive to the enemy's tactics. Three questions. Number one, how do we improve the kingdom? Number two, how do we improve the lives of others? Number three, how do we improve our own lives? When we can search for answers to these three foundational questions, we then begin to understand what is truly at stake. Watchmen, thanks again for tuning into the broadcast. If you didn't hate it, go hit that subscribe button. You can check out our website at palais.com. That's palais, P-A-L-A-E-U-S dot We'll see you next time. And remember, come one, come all. Together stand tall. For the Lord rejoices in uprightness.